This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome along to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can download or stream new episodes every Thursday. Now, talking of streams, water is the theme of this week's episode. And you join us by the banks of the River Rye in North Yorkshire in Northern England. And that gushing, babbling and trickling, that's endless flow you hear, is what would have been heard by the monks at Revo Abbey, for whom the water was essential for their health and spiritual well-being. In fact, this natural resource helped sustain their lives here for just over 400 years. And it's this relationship between the monks and the River Rye that is the focus of a new exhibition being hosted at Revo Abbey. To find out more, I first went to meet Alexandra Cripps from the organisation North York Moors National Park to help explain the landscape and ecology and the Revitalise partnership. Alexandra, we're standing here on the edge of the hillside looking down onto the ruins of Revo Abbey just nestled between these trees. This perfect sort of window into the past there. Now tell us about your involvement with Revo Abbey. We're heading up a project called Revitalise, which is a landscape partnership scheme. And it's actually a river restoration project focusing on the western side of the River Rye catchment. So we're working with over 15 other partners to tell the story of the landscape, to really engage others, to be inspired, to understand more about this special area, but also what we can do today to look after our precious water environments. I understand there's been some money dedicated to this project. We've got a £3.4 million project. It's supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and it's a project really looking at conserving, enhancing and restoring the natural environment. So we're focusing on water quality, creating really, really robust habitats to strengthen wildlife networks. We're creating a more naturally functioning river. And the wildlife that we can hear, because as we met here this morning, I think I heard a cuckoo, certainly crows, if not rooks, various other birds as well. It's a really enlivened space up here. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, here we're looking across at hazel, ash and and oak trees. We've got an absolute wealth of veteran and ancient trees in this particular part of the rye catchment. All of the wildlife that rely on these really good habitats, absolutely wonderful bat populations. We've got a really rare species called the alcatho bat. And within the river itself, we've got wonderful fish species, brilliant trout populations, bullheads, lampreys and eels, tiny population of white-clawed crayfish hanging on in the river eye catchment as well. So all those sorts of things the monks, I suspect, would have had perhaps even on their menu when they were living here hundreds of years ago. But going back to what Revitalise is doing, they have several partners, as you've mentioned. One of those, of course, is English Heritage. Why team up with English Heritage? Well, like I say, I think it's really important to remind people about how important river catchments are. And I think to do that, it's telling the story of the landscape. Bringing in partners such as English Heritage is a great way to do that. I mean, it's just absolutely fascinating to see how the monks themselves used water. So you can see sort of a lovely little area of trees, which currently is is a dry area, but we think that might have been where the old river rye used to flow. And they've diverted that and created these springs to make a sort of functioning 
place for obviously how they lived and the industries as well. Of course with global warming, climate change, I gather in 2005 there was some quite bad flooding here. We had this absolutely colossal amount of rainfall. The river had burst its banks and come all the way into the grounds of Rebo Abbey. So looking at pictures of that, it's kind of amazing how much of the land was covered in water. But it's probably fair to say that was very much one of these sort of one in 100 year floods. You know, it was a big event. But rivers naturally flood, hence why we have the term floodplains around the flatter areas around rivers. And so something we're trying to do is this landscape partnership scheme where Vitalise is trying to just allow rivers a bit more space to move and do what they naturally should. And with that, you strengthen habitats and you also slow the flow of water which has a massive benefit to all of us living in these villages near rivers where more water is stored and slowed down in the upper areas so that it's not gushing through and hopefully it's preventing too much flooding in our communities. So the River Rye pretty important to this general area the whole ecological cycle around here really including of course the monks who would have lived here centuries ago Yes, definitely. I think it's really important to think of how the monks would have used water historically. And I think a really important message is to think about, do we all appreciate potentially what we're using at home, the chemical products or what we're flushing down toilets? How does that impact our natural environment? Just taking a moment to really appreciate our environment, the benefits it has to us, health and well-being. We get our drinking water from rivers, so if we keep rivers cleaner, drinking water costs are reduced. There's so many ways that we benefit from river environments. Absolutely, there's a lot to appreciate from this vantage point and we have to thank as well the National Trust who've given us special permission to come up here and record this morning at Revo Terrace. So Alexandra, we've covered now the geography part of the podcast in a way, but now we need to cover the history with that in mind, I next travelled down the hill and I met by the collections curator at Revo Abbey, Susan Harrison. Susan, this is an amazing place and I feel like I have to talk quite low because it feels very sacred and calm in this spot, also quite sheltered and we're in shadow currently. Can you describe these ruins of Revo Abbey that we're standing in right now because as I look up, and the sun's just about to peek through that window there, it's, I mean, it's just majesty, isn't it? It is. We're stood in the presbytery of the church at Revo. We're next to the high altar here, and we're in these amazing ruins that stand 20 metres above our heads. Now they're roofless, but originally when they were built in the 13th century, they would have been a totally magnificent picture. Think of painted walls. Think of wooden partitions, choir stalls, painted windows, ceramic floor tiles, decorative floor tiles, choral monks, candles, incense burning, and you get a very, very different sense of this building now to what it was. Yes, and I think if people listen quite closely, perhaps even turn up the volume on their headphones, they can probably just detect a very slight resonance because of the stone that surrounds us. 
Yeah, and we're cost situated right in the bottom of the valley here. So the church is actually orientated on what we call liturgical east because the nature of this valley meant that as it falls away towards the River Rye, it had to be terraced and you couldn't put a massively long church the normal way that you would face it. And so the church has been turned to face northwest. Revo Abbey uses a fairly standard Cistercian plan where you have the church, you have the cloister off that church and the chapter house off that refectory, but it all is terraced down into the valley and it's all had to be specially adapted with the shape of Rye Valley. Yes, most of this is behind us effectively from where I'm standing right now and if I look right up the hill, that's where we were standing previously with Alexandra. Also, the thing I think that strikes me is you've described this as a church but it feels bigger. It feels more cathedral-like. It's definitely on the scale of a cathedral. It is a mammoth piece of work. It's constructed to the glory of God. The extent of which we can see all the way from the high altar right down to the nave is a massive distance. Yet in the medieval period, you would never have had that view. It would have been segregated by different screens, different uses. So we're actually in a lucky position now that we can take on the whole of that and see that and understand its majesty. Is this design what we would call Gothic? It is, yes. Pointed arches. To when you look at the earlier part of the church constructed the nave, that's more rounded arches showing that sort of development in the architecture. Now Revo, it's a French sounding name. How did the Abbey actually get that name? The foundation of the Cistercian order starts on the continent and starts in France and Cistercian monks start to come over to England and here the first founding monks, there's 30 monks led by the abbot William, they name the valley after the river and it's Revo, Rye Valley, literally. The greater environment beyond this building, behind us obviously as you say it's sort of, the site is kind of stepped, what are the number of buildings in this direction? There are tens of buildings ranging from the main functions of a monastery with your church, your chapter house, refectory, dormitories, toilet block, abbot's house, that kind of thing. But then surrounding that was a big walled precinct and that is visible on the hillside and around and it's bordered at the other side by the River Rye. And that would have been something like 92 acres. And then even beyond that, the monastery controlled further sets of land that were set out in granges or tenanted. So apart from what we can see today, back in maybe the 1300s, we'd also see sheep grazing in the fields, cattle as well. We've heard a few pheasants today, but there might have been a few back in those days as well. Yeah, there were definitely farmers. The sheep sustained the Cistercian wealth for many years until the Black Death. It was an important part of the landscape and industry here. So further down the valley, at the bottom of the monastic precinct, there's a fulling mill. So that would have been used to process the fleeces. A real self-sustaining community with a sacred site, but also practical things and industry and ways of clothing yourself, feeding yourself, bathing, drinking, etc., etc. Definitely self-sustaining, but also outward-facing. They're part of this larger Cistercian community throughout England, throughout Europe. But equally, the fact that the monasteries here help serve the wider community around the area as well. And so when the monasteries dissolved in 1538, 
that actually is quite catastrophic for the community around as well. Their income has dried up. Obviously, the site has developed a lot over time between the 1100s and the time that it is effectively dissolved by Henry VIII. So how many monks would be living here roughly over those time periods? The foundation starts with 30 monks and very rapidly in the 12th century there's notes that there are 650 men associated with this site. Now not all of those are choir monks living on the site, they can be lay brothers living off site but there's a rise and fall in the community throughout all of the years and that can be dependent on political environment, economic environment, health and welfare and so even at the end of Revo when it's suppressed in 1538 there are 125 men recorded here but only 23 of those are monks. Now, we've got a sprawling site. It's vast. How did they get their water? The Cistercians were fantastic water engineers. So they would have had a a wellhead from springs just on the hillside and piped the water down into the site. And because it is such a steep valley, that can work in the favour as well. So you have the water entering from the upper part of the site being utilised all the way through the site and the waste leaving the site into the river at the bottom. How did the monks then organise their water flow here? A lot of it is hidden underground and it's a lot of conjecture that we have to put together to work out both from geophys that examines underground evidence through to where we can see evidence of pipes coming into certain buildings. And so what we know they would have had to do is literally lay pipes and they could have been ceramic pipes, really wide bore for bigger water flow through to lots and lots of lead water pipes. So really narrow bore pipes that would bring that water over long distance to exactly where it was needed. And you've got a, an example in your hand, not of Revo Abbey, but of another abbey which is in southeast England, which helps to demonstrate how the water can be controlled. Yes, yeah, so what we've got is a plan from Canterbury Cathedral. This plan was drawn up in the 12th century that helps a plumber work out where it needs to do water repairs or anything like that so the buildings are drawn as though you're stood in the middle of a complex and you see the elevations on plan and then over the whole of that plan is drawn different pipes in different colours signalling the different types of water that were needed. It's a modern day utilities plan. Is it similar to what would have happened at Revo basically? We don't have the evidence of a plan being drawn at Revo, but we do know that it's exactly that form of engineering that would have been used. These pipes that you describe in in that plan, which is in your hand, um, do these pipes survive today? Is there evidence that people can see of these? They won't actually see the physical pipes because any that remain are still underground, although there are a few that have been revealed through archaeological excavation. But what we do see is channels and evidence where those pipes were and where they've been robbed out as well following the dissolution because of the value of lead. Well, let's find out about the uh, monks and how they manage their water here at Revo and also some of the tools that they used to do so. Where do we need to go next? We need to go over to the museum. Can you describe then the different types of water that had to be managed here hundreds of years ago. We, we mentioned in our previous location there in the church about the colour coding. 
Do we have an inkling of that here? We do. We followed the Canterbury plan that was made in the 12th century and used that as inspiration to think about the water management here at Revo and brought in a number of objects from monasteries throughout the north as well so that we can understand that better. So what we have are things like colour-coded freshwater blue and here we've got the most amazing large ceramic water pipes. They're 45 centimetres tall up to 15 centimetres diameter at its widest part, but they're slightly tapered, so they interlock in each other. These particular ones come from Kirkham Priory, which is not that far away from here, but they would have transported huge volumes of water over shorter distances. And then next to those, we're showing some lead water pipes. These are much, much smaller bore, and they're literally made from flat sheet of lead that's rolled into a cylinder, and then they're jointed with more lead. And one of the joints you can see have got a double V that's inscribed on it as well, which may be a protective device. And these would have transported water all over the site, wherever it was needed. The lava outside the cloister, an important spiritual place where the monks could have washed their hands before they go into the refectory, or they might have performed the mandatum, the washing of the feet there as well. And again, what we can see in the showcase is some little copper taps, and these would have literally turned the water supply on and off. And one of these, again, is from Kirkham Priory, and it's a tap in the shape of a cockerel. I love this one because it's a stopcock. <laughs> Literally. And it's adjacent to another one that's from the cloister at Fountains Abbey that has a beautiful serpent-headed tap as well. We're also showing an example of that lava basin. So here at Revo, that lava basin has gone. But often on monastic sites, the lava basin is made of a polished limestone. It's special. You can see the lead pipes coming through it. And we've got an example of one here from Gisborough Priory. It just helps give that idea of what these sites looked like at their height and how integral the water and the water management was to the site at the time. And is there a reason why you've had to sort of evoke this water story with objects borrowed from other locations? After the suppression in 1538, a lot of the value was sold out of Revo. And so the building stone, the marble had a value, the lead from the roofs had a value, the lead from the water pipes, the copper alloy taps. A lot of this is stripped out and is moved into the general market. The same pattern happens across a lot of monasteries. At Revo, there was the Ministry of Works, Office of Works, Excavations and Clearances in the 1920s. What they endeavoured to do was clear the site down to a nominal medieval ground level. When they were doing that, they found a certain number of objects, about 10,000 actually from Revo. <laughs> that doesn't even kind of touch the surface for the earlier archaeology or loss. In the same way, we've got that pattern repeated across a lot of our sites. So what we've got is chance finds of evidence, which is why we've drawn evidence across from a number of our sites. The 
permanent display here at Revo is all about Revo and objects that are only found at Revo. What's special about a new exhibition at Rye Valley Abbey is that we have drawn together evidence from across northern monastic sites to bring them to evoke that idea and what we're trying to talk about with the water technology. Absolutely, and I think it also demonstrates how each of these monasteries was independent, but also dependent upon one another as part of the greater sort of monastic life. It's all a huge amount of knowledge sharing. So in terms of architects, they would have brought architects in from other sites. You can follow the kind of architectural patterns. And again, that technology and knowledge is brought in. The Cistercians, Northern monks, they're a seat of learning and a seat of power. And so that is shared. And if one monastery is doing something, another monastery can do it as well. The objects that we're looking at today then, have they been seen by the public before? Very few of these objects have been seen by visitors before, which is really nice to bring them on display for the first time as well. Now there's one particular object that you'd like to talk about at Revo. What is that? So this is a ashlar, a block of sandstone, and it was found during those excavations in the 1920s, and it was found in the rear daughter drain, basically the toilet drain. It's actually an example of monastic graffiti whilst contemplating the hours using the toilet. Right, okay. And it's um, a Holy Spirit in the form of a dove that's being graffitied on this block over a number of sittings. And do we have any other objects related to the water story at Revo that don't fit in this museum space? So out on the site, there is lots of evidence of water management on the site. It's not necessarily immediately obvious, we need to look for it, but one that is very, very obvious is the Great Drain, and that is literally the drain that runs from under the refectory, and you can follow, you can see the passage of it under the rear door to the toilet block, and you can see the whole scope of it up to 10 metres deep from the full drop it was originally spanned, so you call it the Great Drain, but it could just be practically the greatest drain. It's, it's huge. It is absolutely massive. And again, that's paralleled on other monastic sites as well. Yeah. We have been doing some work recently on the Great Drain because it was part of that concept of changing the watercourses originally. And we found that areas of it are silted up and there's been a little bit of collapse. And so it's part of a conservation project at the moment to examine the causes of any blockages. The solution of that is going to allow free water drainage again across the site. Are there also tannery vats? Did they used to make leather? Yeah, very, very unusually, we've got evidence of four vats here at Revo. They're in the lower part of the valley. They are massive brick-constructed baths, effectively, rectangular-shaped, and they would have been used to tan leather. So you would have taken these skins and you would have put them in these vats with urine, saved with urinals from the toilet block, and that leather would have been processed. It would have been quite a smelly process. And ultimately, that waste from the vats would have been drained into the diverted water channel and that would have flowed back into the River Rye. There's a water cycle here. It is. It starts with your fresh water. That fresh water is used as spiritual water. You've also got the gathering of grey water from the roofs into cisterns and tanks. You're getting that fresh waters held 
by gates ready for flushing the great drain. You've got waste coming from the laundry, from the kitchens, from the toilets, and that all gets flushed out and through your industry as well, out into the river. So how would you describe then the level of water engineering and management here at Revo? Because with our modern ears, we probably are thinking right now, this is remarkable, it's very advanced. How advanced would it have been in well, 1100 to 1300s to 1500s? It was definitely at the forefront of engineering advancement at the time. It's still astonishing now when we examine that, and that's part of that conservation work as well that we're doing to understand even more about how great that water management and engineering feats were. After discovering how vital water was to Revo Abbey, I'm now going to meet our third guest. Not a monk, but a modern day water manager, and someone who knows why looking after it is vital today as well. Her name is Neve Byrne. Well, we're standing by the River Rye again, which is where we began this podcast. And I'm with Neve. Now tell us, what does your role with Revitalize involve? Yeah, so my role with Revitalize, I'm a, a graduate trainee. So I'm on this amazing two-year contract to be able to deliver the works of the project. And I'm, I'm able to just get involved with all aspects of the project really. So one of the key important aspects on the River Rye is there's a big issue with sedimentation. So that really is when a, a real heavy rainfall, rain falls onto the soil and unfortunately a lot of the places along the Rye, the soil then goes into the river. And when you see that kind of brown color in the river during a, a storm kind of environment, that is the soil being lost. So what I do along the River Rye is I engage and work with landowners mainly in the farming community and we work alongside each other delivering conservation agreements to really just restore, conserve and protect the natural environment. So that could be planting more trees, protecting the habitats such as marshy grasslands, but also protecting the inner structures of the River Rye, restoring it back to its natural state. But in order to do that as well, we also need to gather information about the local wildlife as well because there's only so much anecdotal information about people saying wildlife used to be better in the past. So we also need to gather that important information as well. So we do electrofishing surveys, we do bat surveys, we also record the ancient and veteran trees and the river flies, just to get that baseline information on how the river rise doing and what we can do to protect it. So you're a real water baby then, you're often out by bridges like this and by little waterfalls like the one we have in front of us here on, on this corner. Yes, this is um, podcast is something extremely different to my usual role. I'm usually out getting wet, um, surveying fish, gathering river flies and really just getting muddy really. Yeah, and wearing waders and this sort of thing. Yeah. So um, what can people do to protect these sorts of water environments that we've got just below our feet really, like the River Rye? Well, firstly, you can really just, in your local environment, just get out to one of your nature charities and give them a helping hand. We really are grassroots charities usually and just need that helping hand to restore our rivers. But one of the most important things as well is biosecurity. So um, three very simple checks is check, clean and dry. So when you're going to a new place to look at a river or even to a new environment, 
just make sure none of the clothes you're wearing or none of the boots have mud on it because you can actually carry really in face of diseases and in face of plant seeds at the bottom of your shoes and that can actually be really destroying on our habitats unfortunately. Right, uh, that's something I've not appreciated before so clean your feet before you yeah. wade potentially. Yes. And always do so safely, obviously. Yeah, even if you're not going into the river, just walking along the habitats, you're checking your shoes, making sure there's no dirt, because they can carry just diseases, very small diseases on your soles of your shoes that destroy those really small pockets of local wildlife, unfortunately. And we see that impact on the river ride today. Well, I've learned a bit about river management so far today. What have you learned about uh, river management and public engagement education? Yeah, so... Um, I came from a graduate position, so this is really my first river role, really. And it, river management isn't really managing the river, actually. Very funnily, it's quite the opposite. We're just letting rivers do its thing and just giving a space to be able to burst its banks when it's need to and just restore it back to what it used to be, a naturally function river. And farmers are really leading the way with that. So they are assisting alongside us to plant trees, to remove livestock from the river and just give it space. So we covered in this podcast that water was vital to life at Revo and 900 years since the Abbey's foundation, that idea is still relevant today. Do you think visitors will gain an appreciation and respect for their own water use when they visit Revo Abbey and its new exhibition, do you think? Yeah, I definitely think so. When you're walking through the expedition, you can really see and visualise how they used to use water in the past but it can also just reflect back on your own use of water and how we in the modern day are really disconnected to our water use and the monks back then they were really dependent on the water for transport, for food, for hygiene and even for spiritual means which we don't really use today so I think it can really be a good way to reflect on how we use water. Some people like to volunteer at English heritage sites but is there also a way for people who are interested in the natural environment, in rivers, in, in ecology, in hydrology? Can they volunteer with organisations like yours, the North York Moors National Park? Yeah, most, most importantly, we are always looking for new volunteers to come and just help. It doesn't even have to be river-based. You know, a lot of the things we do is planting trees along the watercourses, restoring, just restoring nature. And it really is a feel-good factor about it. And you can really enhance those senses you can hear the birds like you can hear in the podcast today and you can hear the river and it just really connects you to the river again and even in your in your own day-to-day -day lives just to see how connected we are to the river even in our own houses so from the appliances we use to the drains even in our sinks and our toilets they're all connected to the river so the fresh cleaning water we need we want it to come from a fresh water source but also what we put down the drain is just as important as well. And even just out in our garden, making our garden wildlife friendly so they can move across the habitat easier than what it is today. So a final thought, Neve, as we take in this glorious bridge with its three arches and um, this sort of waterfall joining into the river here. Water really is central to life everywhere, past, present and future really. Yeah, even around us today, you can see how the monks really depended on the water for food, for recreation, for fishing. And we did lose a bit of that, you know, going into the future day. We're, we're starting to disconnect from the river. So we're really just trying to reconnect local communities, visitors, 
just to reconnect to the river and just emphasise how important it is to our everyday lives and see how we can better improve it for our future selves and the wildlife around us.